In the last episode of 2023, I recapped some of the more interesting nature news story that came out of that year. And recently, I've come across some nature news that relates, either directly or indirectly, to topics of some of my more recent episodes of this podcast. So rather than wait until the end of this year, by which time I will 100% have forgotten all about it, for this episode, I want to update you on some recent nature news. I mean, the podcast is called Dispatches from the Forest, after all. And I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara. So just a handful of episodes back, I talked about wolverines. In case you missed that episode, wolverines are the largest land-dwelling member of the mustelid or weasel family. They're a resident of the northern hemisphere and can primarily be found in Scandinavia, the more northerly parts of Russia, China, Mongolia, and the isolated boreal forests of northern Canada and Alaska. But there are also isolated populations, about 300 individuals or so, remaining in the lower 48 states, in the high country of Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Oregon, Washington State, and Utah. Now, the inspiration for that episode was also a recent news story that I had seen. Citing threats from climate change to their snowy mountain habitat, wolverines were recently listed as threatened in the lower 48 states under the Endangered Species Act. This listing gives the government a year to designate critical habitat where commercial activities will be restricted to help wolverine populations recover. More recently, specifically Friday, January 26th, the state of Montana, where a large portion of the wolverines in the lower 48 call home, announced that they were going to sue the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to get the decision to put wolverines on the endangered species list reversed. Why, you ask? Well, it turns out that wolverines have been at the center of a quiet saga going back and forth for the last decade. Several times since 2013, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has proposed listing wolverines as threatened, but ended up withdrawing the recommendation in response to either changing science or, more often, changing politics. In 2020, the nonprofit organization, the Center for Biological Diversity, sued the Department of the Interior. The center won their lawsuit in 2022, which ultimately led to the Wolverines listing last November. So that brings us to, as of the publishing of this episode, a couple weeks ago. Montana's Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks announced that they're going to challenge the listing in district court. They assert that wolverines are doing fine in the state, inhabiting most, if not all, of the habitat that's available. Furthermore, they claim that they're already working cooperatively with neighboring states to conserve wolverines, and an Endangered Species Act listing would only hamper their conservation efforts. In addition, while trapping wolverines in the lower 48 states is already prohibited, trappers are concerned that an Endangered Species Act listing of the wolverine would limit or shut down legal trapping opportunities in areas that overlap with wolverine habitat. Now, when the Fish and Wildlife Service made the listing, it cited a climate analysis that predicted a significant decrease in snow across five mountain ranges in the northern Rockies, where wolverines live and breed, by the year 2100. 
If those climate models are accurate, the agency says, wolverine populations will suffer because they rely on spring snowpack for denning, foraging, and reproduction. In addition, research has shown that wolverines cache food year-round, and like I said in episode 63, this is especially true in the late winter and early spring when females are nursing young and food is scarce. So a warmer climate means that food cached during that time isn't going to last as long. It's the equivalent of turning up the temperature on your refrigerator. Your milk's going to spoil faster. But Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks disputes that conclusion. A study published earlier in 2023 on wolverines in Scandinavia found that they were able to den and reproduce successfully even in areas without spring snow cover. In fact, according to this study, wolverine distribution expanded and reproduction rates increased in those areas. So which study is right? Well, I don't know. My hope is that wolverines really are resilient enough to adapt to a changing climate. But at the same time, what if that's wrong? Is it worth the risk? Personally, I think it's better to err on the side of caution. Protecting critical habitat is usually a good move that benefits many species, in addition to the one designated for protection. In the meantime, it'll be interesting to see how this next chapter in the Wolverine saga plays out. I'll keep you updated if I hear more. I also mentioned in the episode about wolverines that Colorado is considering reintroducing them into the state. And you might recall, if you've listened to recent episodes, that Colorado just reintroduced wolves into the state. The Center for Biological Diversity was also at the center of another petition, this one regarding wolves, trying to get them relisted under the Endangered Species Act. This listing would have provided protection and nullified laws in the states of Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming that permit the killing of wolves. Now, wolf management in the United States has been a complex and controversial issue since, well, for a really long time. Wolves have been on and off the endangered species list, and management decisions have passed between state and federal governments, depending largely on politics rather than science. Now, this past Friday, February 2nd, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced that relisting gray wolves in the northern Rockies and western U.S. was, quote, not warranted, unquote. The agency said that it had conducted an analysis and concluded that gray wolves were not at risk of extinction in the West now or in the foreseeable future. Now, I try to avoid politics in this podcast, but unfortunately, it's impossible to separate wolf management and politics. Maybe the most ironic and concerning quote I read about this decision came from Republican Congressman Bruce Westerman, chair of the Natural Resource Management Committee, who said, quote, We know the Endangered Species Act is in desperate need of scientific reform, and congressional Republicans have been working to make these changes a reality, unquote. Let me just say this. If you know anything about U.S. politics, you probably know that the Republican Party isn't exactly known for their environmental stewardship and science-based environmental decision-making. Now, the opposition to wolf reintroduction and protection comes largely from ranchers and ranching groups concerned about wolf predation on livestock. Interestingly, a recent study by the Voyager's Wolf Project, a nonprofit group that studies wolves in northern Minnesota, 
found that even a four-foot-tall fence was enough to deter most wolves from preying on livestock. The experiment took place on a cattle ranch in northern Minnesota. Now, over the years, about 26% of wolves radio-collared by the Voyager's Wolf Project have died on this ranch, usually by intentional hunting and trapping because of predation, even though the ranch makes up only about 1% of the study area. But this ranch just happens to be, for whatever reason, at the boundary of several wolf packs and along a common route used by dispersing lone wolves, which keeps an endless supply of wolves nearby. Wolves which just keep filling in the void created by hunting and trapping. So the Voyager's Wolf Project proposed a solution, one that, if successful, would protect both wolves and cattle. With the ranch owner's help, they erected about five miles of fence, four feet tall, with two feet of wire skirting on the ground to deter anything from digging under. And even though the wolves could easily jump over this fence, they didn't. GPS-collared wolves have been tracked moving up to the fence, walking down the fence line, and then moving on. Trail cameras also showed wolves staying out of the fenced area, for the most part. A few jumped over, and those problem wolves were eliminated. Now granted, fencing a large area can get expensive very quickly, but it's a simple and effective solution. And since predation is most likely to occur during the calving season, maybe moving cows into a smaller area during that time is more feasible. It's really a win-win, and in the long run, Fencing may be more cost-effective than having to constantly trap and kill wolves. While wolf reintroductions tend to get a lot of press and stir up a lot of controversy, other efforts to reintroduce native species to their historic range, like wolverines, tend to fly under the radar. In the Kettle Mountains of north-central Washington state, it's not wolves or wolverines that are being reintroduced, it's lynx. Now, lynx used to be abundant in Washington state. But colonization, habitat destruction, trapping, and wildfires exacerbated by climate change all took their toll. In fact, climate change and the increasing threat of catastrophic wildfires are the primary reasons for the lynx's current precarious conservation status. Lower intensity fires historically created a mosaic of lynx habitat, but massive wildfires, which began appearing regularly in this region around 2002, have burned large swaths of the Okanagan mountain range, which makes up one of the state's few core lynx habitats. By 2019, intense fires like these had substantially impacted at least half of the suitable lynx habitat in the Okanagan mountains. Lynx are listed as endangered in the state of Washington and threatened under the Federal Endangered Species Act. Prior to 2020, lynx were occasionally seen in the Kettle Mountains, but only in very small numbers, and most likely only as transients. Aside from wildfires, another challenge that lynx face is that while they're protected in the United States, the nearest population that could naturally recolonize the Kettle Mountains is just north of the border in British Columbia, where lynx can still be trapped without any limits. So what's being done? Well, the Confederated Tribes of the Colville developed a plan to reintroduce lynx into suitable habitat on the Colville Reservation. The five-year plan, which was initiated in 2021, involves trapping and relocating 10 lynx a year from British Columbia to the Colville Reservation. The hope is that the lynx would make their home there and start reproducing. 
One of the major goals was to provide an additional population of lynx in western North America, as well as increase the chances of connectivity with lynx in British Columbia and the Okanagan Highlands. So, how's it going so far? Well, the first season, which ran from November 2021 to February of 2022, three of the nine lynx that were introduced returned to Canada. But one of those later came back south to the Kettle Mountains, which proved that it's possible for these lynx to move back and forth. In October of 2022, ten more lynx were trapped and released. Well, two of them were the same ones that had been trapped the first time and had migrated back to Canada. But this time the cats were released earlier in the fall, hoping that it would give them time to become familiar with the area before winter. And so far it appears that the plan is working. Of the 17 cats that were trapped and released in the first two years, now remember two were caught twice, three unfortunately died, four returned to Canada, but the remaining 10 have established themselves in the Kettle Mountains. It's believed that at least one litter of kittens was born north of the reservation, but officials haven't been able to confirm that yet. In 2023, another seven lynx were released in the area, five of which stuck around. And the Confederated Tribes of the Colville are not stopping with lynx. They have plans to restore burrowing owls and bison on their land, too. In fact, the Kalispell tribe recently gifted them 33 bison, which were released on their range at the beginning of October. In the American Southwest, a petition to reintroduce jaguars into New Mexico's Gila National Forest was, unfortunately, not successful. Again, it was the Center for Biological Diversity that petitioned the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to designate critical habitat that would support a population of jaguars in Arizona and New Mexico, and, like the lynx in the Kettle Mountains, have connectivity between the Gila National Forest and the northernmost jaguar population. Now, according to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, there's an estimated 173,000 jaguars in the wild, distributed throughout 19 countries, mostly in Central America to Southern Argentina. But in the last 30 years, only eight jaguars have been documented in the United States. So the United States is definitely the northern edge of their range. But in the early 1800s, Jaguars ranged as far north as Colorado and east to coastal Louisiana. Jaguars were even in California, as far north as Monterey, until at least 1860. The last confirmed jaguar in Texas was shot in 1948, and by the late 60s they were thought to have been extirpated completely from the U.S. Arizona outlawed jaguar hunting in 1969, but by then no females remained. And over the next 25 years, only two males were sighted and subsequently killed in the state. Now, adult jaguars are apex predators, and they're also considered to be keystone species. Jaguars control the populations of their prey species, like herbivorous and seed-eating mammals, and in doing so, maintain the structural integrity of their forest habitat. They generally avoid humans, and attacks on people are extremely rare. The first official known human fatality from a jaguar happened in 2008, and most attacks, when they do happen, occur when the cat is cornered or wounded or both. Jaguars prefer dense forests, open, seasonally flooded wetlands, dry grasslands, and historically oak forests in the United States. But jaguar habitat has decreased by 20% in the last two decades, 
and 55% in the last century, with most of those declines in the southern United States, northern Mexico, northern Brazil, and southern Argentina. So you can see why the Center for Biological Diversity brought this petition to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and why it's frustrating that it was declined. The jaguar is threatened by habitat loss and fragmentation, as well as illegal killing in retaliation for livestock depredation and poaching for trade in jaguar body parts. In 2002, the IUCN listed them as near-threatened. All international commercial trade in jaguars and their body parts is prohibited. In 1986, the Coxcomb Basin Wildlife Sanctuary was established in Belize as the world's first protected area for jaguar conservation. In 1999, scientists from 18 jaguar-range countries determined the most important areas for long-term jaguar conservation based on the status of jaguar populations, stability of prey base, and quality of habitat. These areas, called jaguar conservation units, or JCUs, are big enough to support at least 50 breeding individuals. A total of 51 JCUs were designated in 36 geographical regions. In addition, in 2010, optimal travel routes were identified across the Jaguar's range in order to establish wildlife corridors that connect the JCUs. These corridors represent areas with the shortest distance between jaguar breeding populations that require the least possible energy output for dispersing individuals and pose the lowest mortality risk. They range in length from 2 miles, or 3 kilometers, to nearly 700 miles, or 1,100 kilometers. Now, in defense of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, while they did decline this recent petition to designate critical habitat in the Gila National Forest, and to reintroduce jaguars into that area, they haven't done nothing with respect to jaguar conservation. In 2012, over 800,000 acres, or 3,400 square kilometers, was set aside in Arizona and New Mexico for the protection of jaguars. More recently, in April of 2019, they published the Jaguar Recovery Plan, which designated Interstate 10 as the northern boundary of the Jaguar Recovery Unit, in Arizona and New Mexico. Gila National Forest and Gila Wilderness are located north of I-10. But again, you can see the Center for Biological Diversity's point at over 2.7 million acres, nearly 11,000 square kilometers, Gila National Forest is the sixth largest national forest in the lower 48 states. There's plenty of room there for jaguars. And with that, we're gonna wrap up this episode. Thanks for listening. Remember to like and follow or subscribe. Leave me a comment too if you have one. It is, as always, totally and completely free. Some other ways to support the podcast, tell someone else about the podcast. Or better yet, after spending some quality time outside in the cold, curl up under a blanket near a nice warm fire with a cup of hot cocoa and listen together. Check out our Patreon page and become a patron. Subscriptions start at a mere $5 a month, and after three months, you get some cool merchandise. You can find all the information at patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can do that through PayPal. Dispatchesfromtheforest at gmail.com is my PayPal address and how to get in touch with me if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes. Check out our merch store at cafepress.com forward slash dispatches from the forest. 
There's loads of things there. I'm sure there's something you'll like. Maybe something for your Valentine. For additional content, check out Dispatches from the Forest on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to go outside and get dirty. The Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.